0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. As more and more developers invest in playgrounds to attract children, that indicator species of successful places, are these playgrounds we're creating really good enough? What can we learn from the adventure playgrounds? that 50-year-old invention which these children engage not only in playing on the equipment but in actually building it. Today we're speaking to Natasha Kapoor, an anthropologist who's done work with us on the developer in the past to hear about another role she's been playing with an adventure playground in Hackney. So I'm here with Natasha Kapoor. Natasha did our first place test as an anthropologist visiting King's Cross and taking us on a walk through its spaces and with its citizens to understand the experience of this new place in London. But since then, she's been busy doing a different kind of work. Um, And so it's really my pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Natasha, tell me about what you've been up to.
1: Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. Um, And yeah, so since I last did that piece of research for the developer and a few other bits and pieces, um, I've become quite involved with an adventure playground. It's called Shakespeare Walk Adventure Playground, um, and it's in Stoke Newington in Hackney in London. Um, I came on as a trustee just before lockdown, and um, it's been keeping me very <laughs> busy. Um, the playground itself is really fascinating as a space. Um, it's 46 years old. It was built in the 70s by volunteers who just basically took some land from a rundown park, which is now Butterfield Green. Um, the first adventure playgrounds were a post war effort to turn bomb sites into experimental places for kids to play safely, um, which is a really incredible idea and was really revolutionary at the time um, and still is for that matter. Where Shakespeare Walk Adventure Playground is situated is is uniquely diverse in that we we straddle sort of two very different neighborhoods in Hackney, one of the wealthiest and one of the most deprived. Um, And so you know, where many organizations would struggle to get a diversity of children and families, we don't have that problem at all. We're this kind of incredible magnet um, across the spectrum because we're providing really incredible play experiences. And, you know, once kids find us, they just don't ever want to leave. So it's this really incredible microcosm um, that I became fascinated by and wanted to get involved with. Um, And, you know, we're doing really well. Uh, We had around 600 young people come through our doors last year um, totaling 3,700 visits. It's very kind of buzzy. It's, there's lots going on. Um, but there's a lot of work to do. Um, the interesting thing about adventure playgrounds and what makes them really different to normal playgrounds is that the ethos is very child centric. And so, you know, you get lots of co-design words being thrown around nowadays. Well, these places have been doing it from the beginning. This is not a new concept um, for the adventure play world. Um, and we have staff who are trained in play work and they use the sort of like minimum intervention approach to turn young people's ideas for play and design and creativity and ultimately community into reality, which is, again, incredibly refreshing to watch that kind of play out.
0: How is an adventure playground funded? And, it, you know, I'm getting the impression that kids are kind of checking in. There's play there. This is not like a, a playground that we would imagine an, another playground in Hackney. It's very much more of a kind of formal experience of coming through the door. Um, and who pays for adventure playgrounds? You know, they started out, you said, as kind of volunteer
1: organizations. Are they now
0: funded in some way?
1: Um, yeah, so it is a very different kind of model. So you could imagine a normal playground in a park, you know, obviously that's being taken care of by the park, um, park rangers, etc. But um, when adventure playground have is trained staff who are on site. We open our doors at very specific hours of the day, often after school. So kids can come after school um, and then usually um, a Saturday on the weekend. Um, But the key difference is really that young people uh, between the ages of six and 16 or up to 25 if they have special needs um, can be dropped off. Um, And that is a major bonus for parents and carers. I mean, I'm always saying it's the best childcare deal in town because not only are your kids super happy to be there, but you get, you know, a couple hours to yourself. Um, And then the kids are really free to do whatever they want. Um, They're also free to come and go. Um, unless a parent expressly says, No, I want, you know, my child to stay here. But the idea is that we're fostering kind of independence as much as possible. So often the kids are coming to the playground on their own. Um, and you know, this is why this is why I was kind of drawn to the adventure playground model and became a trustee in the first place, because having had children of my own, I felt that this experience of risk taking through play was really important. Like this kind of idea of being able to kind of do your own thing, um, kind of figure things out for yourself, like decide if this is for me or not for me. That's very quite rare um, in, in the way that kind of kids are being socialized nowadays. Um, and I wasn't a huge fan of that helicopter style of like carting my kids off to the playground every day. And then even when I did, they kind of got a bit bored of those spaces, uh, you know, after the age of five or six. So there's there's kind of like a um, there's a whole culture around these playgrounds, around around independence and healthy risk taking, and kind of like learning through trial and error. Um, and then you asked about funding, um, and so we receive a, around half of the funding required to just run the playground comes from Hackney Council. Um, I can talk more about funding in a bit, but you know that's it's um it, it we have to then kind of raise the rest of the money through hiring the site out for you know. Corporate team away days, or birthday parties, or schools use the space during the day, et cetera, et cetera. So the nice thing is, is that we have this space, you know, and we can kind of make use of it, and um, and kind of bring in funds that way. But really, it's an uphill struggle. And um, the playgrounds, you know, across the country, adventure playgrounds are closing all the time. Um, Hackney have been quite supportive and investing in their adventure playgrounds, which has been great. But it really is, you know. Without the help of volunteers and donations and all of this, like, really, really hard work, um, you know, w- they'd be falling on hard times. And for that matter, when I started four years ago, our playground was in quite dire um, circumstances. Um, and we sort of used lockdown um, as downtime to kind of reinvest in the site and repair and maintain some of the play structures, um, and give us a little bit of time to kind of strategically think about how we wanted to kind of grow the playground and, and kind of get it back on its feet. But I'm happy to say that, um, four years on we're in really good shape and there's a lot of really great momentum kind of behind our playground and we're really looking to kind of take it to the next level.
0: You spoke a little bit about co-design and this idea of co-building, co-construction, co-everything being at the heart of the adventure playground. When we think about playgrounds, we think about, you know, some, you know, the council kind of paying someone to put up a structure, but the adventure playground, you know, these were kind of built with and for the kids. Is that a tradition that continues to this day? This kind of idea of children wielding hammers and these being these kind of ad hoc structures and for the kind of architects, designers, developers, and this, that sounds like a total nightmare. So <laughs> I think this I kind of, can we can we kind of get into the, um, the headspace of the of the construction as play um and and what the kind of um final point of the adventure playground is. Does it reach an end point of design or is this something that is just has been evolving for 40 46
1: years? Um yeah so traditionally that was the that was the idea it was all it was all kind of hammers and nails and drills and saws and like let's build this whole world and playworkers were trained up in in how to help kids do that and you know it, there's a very formal kind of process of how a, tr- a playworker would go from stage 1 to stage 4 and you know be skilled up in order to to facilitate that kind of play sadly over the years and due to lack of funding um those skill sets have been dwindling um there are still some incredible playworkers out there that have the knowledge and have the kind of um, mindset to be able to work with kids in a really, really incredible way, uh, building things along those lines. And there are some, there are some best in class um, adventure playgrounds around Europe um, and around this country that you could, that I could point you to um, that are doing that. Um, But like I said, it's, it's kind of become less and less about that and more about, you know, swings and zip lines and kind of, um, you know, creating a space where kids can, can be free, but not, necessarily go to that extent. But I'd have to say, you know, that's that's where we want to go back to. We want to include that kind of an experience in the adventure playground world. Um, that's our kind of uh, one of our goals of reviving that tradition at our adventure playground. Um, and, you know, what's really encouraging is that it isn't, it isn't a nightmare when it's done properly. It's actually really Really beautiful because the theory and the literature around adventure playground is so rich and fascinating. You know, there's such there's this tradition that cuts across sociology, geography, anthropology, you know, architecture, um, and it really lends itself to letting kids make their own worlds with these trade and play workers on hand to facilitate those ideas and turning them into reality. And just the amount of creativity that you see. it just it, it just it, it's it's really about experimentation and in the greatest sense of the word and i think i think nowadays you know what what where do we see that most you know it's probably in the forest school model um which is great you know it's really going some way towards this it's putting kids in nature it's you know exposing them to the elements like you know put on their overalls all the time and, you know, just, just deal with it. But that tends to be a younger kid type thing to do. Um, and I would say the adventure playground model is like, it builds on that in a really fundamental way because it allows kids to be dropped off and that dynamic completely changes the, you know, it's, it's just that that's the game changer, just the kids being dropped off just makes that space and that experience completely different. Um, and, you know, that this is what we all want. We all want our kids to kind of have a, a a bit of our own childhoods where we were off kind of riding bikes in the neighborhood to see our friends and climbing trees or playing in a stream or whatever. And I think adventure playgrounds in the city are really uh, a best case example of how to how to achieve that with our own kids and kind of make you feel like, That's why I'm in the city. You know, like it's 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 so special that it kind of makes me feel like I don't have to compromise that and move to the countryside. You know, it's one of those places that make me feel like I'm not going anywhere. I want this for my kids. This is actually really, really formative and um, and useful and helpful and going to going to raise them in the right way.
0: I think it's interesting what you say about, you know, this idea of the the trained playworker who can also do, you know, impart those construction skills and make this safe environment. And I'm coming from a perspective where uh, it's an industry with kind of a shortage of people coming into it, you know, wanting to get kids into STEM, wanting to get more diversity into architecture, wanting to get you know open doors for all of the trades which, you know, are kind of, um, and to open doors to, you know, new concepts like self-build and um, things like this, and how much empowerment there is in this idea of the kids at this young age being able to kind of have the agency to design, as you said, a world or or a place around them. So it's, I agree with you, it's really um, exciting. So, you know, you've made like this in Passion P- 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 um about like how great the Adventure Playground is and the kind of direction of travel towards um you know its roots and kind of keeping that um tradition alive of um of kit of playwork and construction um but I know also you've done some new things you're kind of talking about the evolving role of the adventure playground and I wonder if you can share a little bit about you know new ideas and kind of new uses uh, that you're bringing into those spaces
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing the thing that we noticed, and I think this is a trend across all adventure playgrounds, but at um, SWAPA, we noticed that we had a, a hard time retaining kids once they started secondary school. Um, and we also know that that's a really uh, important time for kids to have the support of you know, people that they trust and a place they can go after school that isn't just sort of like roaming around. um um, and we wanted to really work on work on uh, kind of retaining them so that they thought that this was a place for them, even once they started, you know, even once they thought that they were kind of past it. And I guess the fact that it's called a playground has, like, you know, branding issues on and its, it's um. Um, at its core, but at the same time, it is, it is still kind of, uh, changing the idea of what a playground represents. Um, so anyways, towards this end, we've, um, we've built a music studio, which we know from the kids was really kind of, um, uh, inviting in terms of the types of things that they'd want to do or play around with. And it's so cool. It's, you know, in a half shipping container um, and one of our play workers is a, a a DJ and a producer, and he's just so awesome. And he just sits down with them and, you know, noodles around on Ableton and these kids have just recorded these incredible you know little bits and pieces songs and it's um it's it's just such a it's such a draw for them um that's one of that's one of our playground's real strengths actually music we we do um we have a bunch of experimental musicians come in once a month um from this charity called the Free Youth Orchestra and they just bring in weird and wonderful instruments across you know analog but also digital ones and just microphones and sorts of effects and just let kids sort of play around on them with the aim of eventually getting to the point where we could create a little orchestra out of the kids who really take a keen interest. So, I mean, everything that we do is really gentle. Everything we do is like kids, we try and bring kids in and not impose our own ideas on them, which, as I say, is like the ethos of the adventure play world. But we know that you know, kids are curious and kids need that playground to change. They need there to be different things happening. They need to, and so that we can continually kind of like spark their interests um, and, and help them kind of have, have new reasons for, for coming along and also attracting different different types of kids. Um, for instance, another thing that we did was, was build a, a skate ramp, um, a half, like a mini skate ramp, which has been like amazing again, for kids who want to learn how to skateboard, but aren't confident enough to start at the big bulls in, in the park, that sort of thing. Um, so, so really an emphasis and, you know, it, it just signals out to the community that this isn't just about you know kids playing in the sandpit this is about um you know whole it, it runs the gamut and 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 having that kind of range of kids from the age of 6 all the way up to 16 is really important to us because you know that's also a very supportive environment for kids to be in it's not just about you know being with your own friends it's kind of also really nice to be around like younger kids that are sort of in the zone but not necessarily in your face all the time
0: Talk a little bit about the Playworker. You mentioned that they have kind of specific training around the construction stuff, but it seems to me that with all these things like learning to create music or learning to you know skateboard or learning to build, that this Playworker is really something that sets apart the adventure playground from what we think of when we think of playground, which is that we just put like a some kind of equipment there and the kids just go crazy and, and that's, you know, that's it. The adults kind of stand at the sidelines. Um, but but how does this, this play worker kind of change that experience? And what is the role of the play worker, um, you know, to, to the whole functioning of the adventure playground <clears throat> in this way?
1: Oh, they're so important. And, um, you know, I remember when I first started, I was talking to a youth worker who's really well-established, Actually, I met him through the um, King's Cross piece and he runs a youth club in King's Cross um, called the Copenhagen Youth Project. And he just said the most important thing you can do is just be open and be consistent. And and, and so for kids, especially kids who really need you um, because they don't have a lot of consistency in their life, you become, you know, those those members of staff who are there and um just available become incredibly important to those to those children and those families. Um, And so So, yeah, the staff, you know, that that frontline role that they play um, in that way is is incredibly important. We invest as much as we can into training, into kind of reflective practice, into, um, you know, new skills that we can add into the mix. You know, there's like I was saying earlier about the kind of rich tradition and literature around adventure play. There's there's 16 play types. I don't know. When I found out about that, there are 16 play types. There's 16 kind of interesting ways that you can play. And it's really important that kids sort of experience all of those. So, you know, a kid who only ever does role play is probably, you know, missing out on these other things. And so the play workers are sort of trained in all of these theories and all of these kind of established practices in effective childhood development. And it's fascinating to kind of talk to them about it as a parent, as somebody who's just kind of looking in because they they're really kind of, um, you know, they're, they're not they're not camp counselors. They are very much watching and kind of intervening at the appropriate moments, but they're not they're not just guiding in the way that often happens around around kids nowadays it's very different to a youth club very very different <laughs> you know because we we have a youth club down the road um and we work very very hard to kind of establish close links with them because they have a number of kids that come to their provision and they don't really have outdoor space. And so we're like, come, you know, come bring your kids to the adventure playground. But we do see the differences and kind of their approach versus ours, which is much more open, much more gentle, much more like uh, meeting the kids at their level um, and then seeing what happens from there um, versus a much more top down approach that a child is is basically experiencing all day long at school anyways um and i think that's probably one of the biggest differences that our that our kind of space provides for that child is that we we allow for kind of emotion we allow for we allow for um a child to kind of let off steam i mean we do entry and exit surveys and it's just drastic, the kind of you know, how they feel before they came in, frustrated, you know, wound up, you know, had a bad day at school or whatever, versus then how they feel when they leave, which is just a sense of kind of freedom and um and space for them to for them to kind of go on with their day.
0: We were speaking, you know, ahead of this podcast, and you mentioned uh, the that the process is the purpose. And I wonder if you could explain what you meant by that. What does it mean to say that the process at an adventure playground is the purpose?
1: Well, this is this is one of my most favorite parts because um, now that I've been at the playground for four years, it's I've actually seen it happen. And it's um, and it wasn't happening before at, at our playground. So I feel really proud of this. The adventure playground ethos is very much child-led. And because the playground is, is theirs, you know, like it's, it's a very easy thing to remember. It's just like, as if, if they come to you and they're just like, what should I do? And then it's just a very easy thing to be just like, I don't know, what do you want to do? Like it's, it's, it allows you to kind of open up this dialogue with them very easily. And what you get is this kind of natural cycling of kids who then take ownership over what's going on. Um, at the playground. And like, as a result, they sort of like mentor the young ones just by being kind of there all the time um, and and sort of set the tone for what's happening. And, you know, this could include anything from like the type of games that get played or the things that are being built or, um, you know, completely changing the aesthetics of the playground with paint or graffiti or like mark making or b- building a structure or a den that just you know, very slowly starts to take shape over the course of a few years, but then eventually those kids leave and you get this whole new crop of kids who start to exert their ideas and influence on the space. And so, which is, which is incredible. Like, it's just incredible, but like, what does the playground need in order to do this? You know what does the staff what do the staff need to be able to do It's such a different skill set and way of thinking about things and what it needs is flexibility it needs to be adaptable it needs to be ready to change and it needs to not be precious about what gets built and i think that's the real you know because you're starting all over again possibly based on what the kids want it, it completely changes the way that you think about what's happening in that space. Um, and it's just so refreshing. It's like just the fact that you're not precious about, you know, it's like that that takes you from being an adult back into being a kid, you know, that 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 change in mindset. And it's um, it's it's wonderful to watch and then in terms of materials think about like okay so if they're building stuff like what does that mean about the materials that we're using you know well they need to be naturally or sus- you know they need to be sustainable because like you're you're going through this <laughs> you're going through this process and you know the materials that lend itself to that practice are ones that you know tend to naturally degrade you know wood um, throw away bits and pieces, you know, we recycle materials. So like things that people wouldn't want, like scaffolding poles or pallets are amazing, as long as they're not painted with that stuff. Um, rubber tires, you know, all of that stuff then gets kind of built into these weird and wonderful sort of sculptures um, that that the kids then use to kind of, you know, play. So it's it's a real, that process is fascinating.
0: I want to ask you about the fence. I mean, I think I know you're the fence of the fence. Yeah. You're embarking on a major fence project, but I mean, I think it's, you know, that's kind of probably something that to be said is that the adventure playground, unlike many playgrounds, unlike other playgrounds is surrounded by a fence, not a chain link fence, but like a big, you know, solid fence um, that needs replacing. And so, I guess you know, firstly, why do you need a fence? And secondly, tell me about this um this fence project and 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 what it's the process, the process of the fence.
1: well, yeah, our fence started falling down, and that was a real turning point for us as a board and also um, you know, as a charity because. Well, it's one thing to find the money to replace a play structure. Um, but a fence, um, and, you know, and ours, as you say, is a beautiful 45-year-old split telegraph pole fence. You know, it's, 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 it's a thing. Um, and this posed a whole new challenge because we realized to replace it with like for like, I mean, that's costing us already a hundred thousand just to just to replace it. And who's gonna give us money to replace a fence? Nobody. (laughs) So but and yet, if we left it to the council, like you say, it would probably end up being, you know, a green metal job. Um, And that would have completely changed the character of the space. So you know, in some ways it was a great challenge because it got us thinking about fences and, you know, in some ways it was like, (laughs) okay, let's go back to what is a fence, you know, like, you know, and I started getting a little anthropological about it, but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's totally taken for granted. It's overlooked. Um, but without it, we don't have a playground and, you know, crucially it sort of frames and preserves whatever's happening inside. So, you know, it's, protecting you know sometimes people are just like oh fences are walls or boundaries and like you think about like what it's not letting in but in our case we don't want to let in we want to create a special place for young people that is free from the overlooking kind of eyes that are usually kind of getting in the way of them figuring their own stuff out so it was like the opposite problem to like building a fence or building a wall it was like no this is actually incredibly important to us um that said, how do you fund replacing it? So the solution sort of came to us when we realized that maybe we should make something big out of this fence. You know, instead of it being this overlooked thing, maybe the fence is the play structure. Um, and this concept of a play fence took shape. So, um, you know, we apply for funding from the Arts Council to uh, lead a series of workshops to co-design this play structure, this play fence. Um, involving some incredible um, artists, architects, um, musicians, acrobats, performers from our local community. You know, we really pulled in some incredible um, high profile people and we made it into a big community outreach project. We involved local schools, other interest groups, you know, our community members into like having their say around what this what this structure could be um, and what it should be. And you know the, we've we've just finished the research phase, and we're we're in the design phase at the moment. But the ideas have been wild, you know, from getting a tube carriage to form one side of the fence. Um, and somebody who might actually be able to get us one. That's the crazy thing. <laughs> um, to, you know, draw bridges at the gates and, you know, eat, like things like 360 degree parkour around 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 the structure. Like it's some of them are really far fetched and, and will require some angel, some angels to come through for us. But some of them are just very creative uses of the space and the structure um, if we if we really like go for it. So. Um, you know, it's actually, this project has become a really big deal because the adventure playground world is sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's often overlooked, you know, it doesn't usually receive funding from something like the Arts Council. And so when we when we won this money, you know, it it sent waves through that world. And I think it gave, you know, some some hope to maybe maybe we can sort of like revive, refresh, kind of, Draw the right kind of attention to these spaces um, by being by being really bold and and also kind of repositioning them as as well drawing attention to the fact that they've been doing this for forty five years anyways, but also repositioning them in the public's minds as being you know community hubs and like incredibly valuable assets that we should be celebrating.
0: We've had uh, you know three. Very high profile playgrounds kind of completed at the heart of new major development projects in the UK recently. Um, we wrote about Mayfield, uh, Brent Crosstown, and we wrote about um, Sheffield as well, a major new playground there, but they are not at all like what you're talking about. They kind of were perfect and pristine and finished and don't have fences around them uh, and are kind of revealed there. Um, So that's kind of the built environment's um engagement is is really an awareness of the importance of play and forming communities and they're starting to invest and in kind of putting these playgrounds in the middle of these developments so a huge acknowledgement of kind of the role that um you know providing for children and providing for kind of more adventurous play they are more um not traditional playgrounds they're a little bit more um inventive a little bit more biodiverse a little bit more exciting um But, you know, in terms of the adventure playground, what has been the built environment's relationship to it? I mean, you mentioned materials, and I know you've said in the past they have donated um, materials to it. Um, But apart from that, um, has the built environment industry architects, you know, um, designers, developers, uh, are they part of this world or how have they been engaging to date?
1: I mean, they have been, Um, you know, adventure playgrounds rely on donations so much these days that we really couldn't exist without them. Um, And um, Sarah Wilson, who is our phenomenal senior playworker, she runs she runs the playground and. We host corporate team days. Um, you know, and every time she tells me how much people get out of the session, you know, the fa- the satisfaction of working with their hands, a bit of manual labor, getting dirty, you know, it's just such a, you know, it's, that's the magnet that adventure playgrounds have really traded on for so long in terms of our um relationships with with the corporate world. Um and also, you know, we welcome Partnerships with local builders and developers for materials and offcuts, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think I've struggled to access Section One Hundred Six um, funding. Um, I think that that's. I, I'm not sure <laughs> if you have any any leads. Um, I would appreciate them. We haven't really had any luck getting in touch with the right people, and it always perplexes. I just don't understand why it just seems like a no brainer. Um, but maybe maybe this is what you know. The, these kind of things. We just need to shout a little bit harder and get our word out and then hopefully people will realize um you know that we're we're a really great place to kind of develop relationships for materials and and any kind of funding that you could provide um yeah i think i think it's it's i mean my my perspective is that it's it's there should be stronger links um i think the reality of the situation is in more socialist um Countries, you know, um, adventure playgrounds are seen more as community hubs and get invested in uh, for that reason and for that value. But in, you know, we have a, we have a more a different system here, more capitalist system. And the thing that kind of, you know, in the same way that guilds invest in schools, and for that matter, corporations are investing through academies. You know, I think there just needs to be a kind of understanding of what the role that adventure playgrounds can play in the social mix. Sadly, play is not statute. It's not statutory. And so funding to play gets cut uh, in a way that it won't necessarily with education um, or, you know, uh, uh, hospitals, things like that. And yet the role that we play, I mean, the relationship that our play workers have with the families of children with the children themselves, you know, we are, we are frontline workers, you know, we are making referrals to social workers, because parents will tell us about the things that they won't tell social workers, you know, it's, there's a really interesting role that we play, because play is opening those doors Um, that are otherwise closed. I mean, and also we are very face to face. You know, a lot of these families aren't digitally literate. English is a second language. There's all sorts of barriers that I know people in the social work world are dealing with all the time. But what's interesting is that because we're that magnet and because we have these inroads, we tend to fill those gaps. I mean I, I won't even get started on the role that we play in kind of physical and mental well-being for children um, and young people, but it's it, it, it is I think time to reposition ourselves and and um, and start to kind of understand the value that we play across many different sectors that we haven't traditionally been um, involved with.
0: I know that many uh, developers, construction companies and architects invest in programs to get people into construction, to get kids involved in construction. They go into schools and they do activities around design, etc. But it seems to me that what you've described is incredibly powerful also in terms of STEM education and getting kids excited about engineering and architecture building. But also you mentioned other um, skills like uh, electronics, engineering, sciences, um, music being like a, a huge link into the sciences as well. Um, so so how would you like to see that built environment relationship uh, evolve? I mean, it strikes me that you talk about playworkers who don't necessarily have the construction skills or the design or, you know, engineering skills. And then we have an entire built environment industry here who who don't necessarily have play worker skills, but are looking or curious about getting gaining skills into co-design and engagement, and certainly want to inspire a next generation. So um, how do we get these groups together?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, there's so many ways in and I just I'm I'm always amazed at like how many boxes we tick in terms of corporate social responsibility, section 106, like I say, or just generally kind of, you know, um, the bigger picture stuff around how do we how do we inspire a generation towards certain skill sets? Um, yeah, I mean, not only are we a direct line to the most vulnerable children, we open up all those channels to their communities and their worlds. So... um Uh, yeah, I just welcome, I welcome that involvement. And also we're very open to kind of partnerships across kind of, not just academically, you know, we're working with Queen Mary University. We work with University College London and their architecture department. Um, But we're also very keen to explore kind of um, the things that are going on in, in the architecture and development world.
0: Do you need special insurance or something? It seems like some of these activities may contain some risk. How do you deal with that?
1: Um, Yes, we do have insurance. And I am aware of some adventure playgrounds actually having harder and harder times getting their insurance. Um, So far, we've been okay, Um, But, you know, um, a child, a young person who signs up to the playground, there's a registration form. There's a there's an acceptance that, you know, a parent is signing um, signing their children into an environment where While we have staff who are kind of keeping an eye on things and um, but the idea is that children are sort of kind of uh, putting themselves in situations that might cause accidents in the same way that an accident might occur at any in any place that they go to. But that's not our responsibility. You know, we have we have kind of things in place in order to kind of keep ourselves um, safe in that regards. We very rarely have any kind of accidents that go beyond kind of cuts and grazes and those types of things. I think what's really interesting what happens with kids when they're actually let to left to to kind of um, experience their own risk um, in an environment as opposed to being told what they can and can't experience is that they sort of get it. They just know when they should climb higher or they shouldn't climb higher. You know, you very rarely get a kid who's like stuck at the top somewhere and just like can't get down. Um, it does happen, but it's not, it's, it's, it tends to be the younger kids at the younger um, uh, spectrum of our six to 16 year olds. And actually it's funny. One of the workshops that we had for the play fence um, uh, design was with these acrobats. They're, they're called mimbrae. They're absolutely incredible. And, and, she She had sort of set up all these extra ropes and, you know, um things for kids to kind of, like, experiment with and play around on. And, um, we have all these wooden beams over this massive sand pit um on one side of our playground. And she could at one point, every child, so there was probably like thirty kids that just happened to be there for that session, and they were all off the ground. They were all like, on a beam or kind of on ropes or whatever. And she just couldn't believe the kind of um, comfort level and confidence of these kids to be kind of scooching around and navigating their way on these quite high kind of wooden beams and she teaches acrobat. She she teaches like this kind of thing all the time and she's like the kids who are coming to the playground they are very skilled at this type of thing and it's and Sarah our our senior playworker was like it's because they just slowly but surely get more and more confident and then they can do it. You know, it's like the playground is just full of challenges like that. And a kid just doesn't naturally throw themselves into into risk or into something that's going to be too much for them. They kind of when they're left to their own devices, they sort of figure things out, you know.
0: There's a lot of concern around the maintenance of play structures. I know that councils themselves will say um, that this is a huge problem, the upkeep, the maintenance, and then kind of safety considerations going to check that the equipment is safe. You've got kind of um, self-built structures as well as kind of formally built structures. Is maintenance an issue? And in terms of, Um, upkeep or making sure that these structures that have been kind of some, especially the ones that have been improvised are safe. What's the approach to that?
1: Well, we're very lucky because Sarah, who's our senior playworker, is also a health and safety inspector for adventure playgrounds up and down the country. So one day a week she goes and does that. And so she's on it which is very reassuring for us as trustees. Um, and also, I'd, I'd imagine for parents and carers who are dropping their kids off. So we're, we definitely always have an eye on that. Um, but absolutely, um, maintenance and repairs is an ongoing struggle. Um, but I feel that is it's kind of... Um, it's kind of a, you know, this whole, the whole relationship we have with funding has to change. So the fact that councils are stretched, the fact that councils have no money, I mean, there's, this is the kind of, you know, larger, bigger picture issue that we have around kind of, where is the money? Where is the money to kind of be able to invest in these spaces for the long term? And so where we've netted out is, well, this money tends to be wrapped up in corporate social responsibility or in kind of, Um, you know, policies that companies are, are, you know, embedded in, in in policies that companies have to adhere to. And I think, you know, it's not really a sad case. It's kind of just let's go for it and let's start being a part of that conversation as opposed to being a part of the council's conversation, because we know that they're stretched. We know that they are feeling it in all sorts of ways. And for that matter, there are frontline services that they need to be investing in which are incredibly important. And so I really just feel like this comes down to long-term partnerships with corporates and with kind of champions, I think champions within organizations who just see that, you know, like a 15,000 donation to our playground would build an entire zip line structure. And yet that's a drop in the ocean for their, for their, you know, in, on their bottom line. You know, I, I, I worked, I worked in marketing before I kind of left to, um, do anthropology full time. And it's, I, it's just, I know, I know the kind of discrepancies between kind of what's happening on those balance sheets and what's happening on the balance sheets of councils. And it's just, well, why are we afraid to kind of tap into all of that? I think there's a lot of good work that can be done by having great partnerships um, with business.
0: This podcast is about place and you've talked about kind of where this adventure playground is situated between these two neighborhoods one of the things you mentioned was that kids can be dropped off so essentially there is a childcare element to this um what are other ways that the adventure playground um, is kind of serves the wider place or what do you think the role of an adventure playground in general could be to to a neighborhood that doesn't have one how does having an adventure playground make a difference
1: Oh, that's a really good question, especially thinking about somewhere that doesn't have one. And and I mean, building a new one. What a wonderful concept, seeing as we're really trying to struggle to keep these alive. But I think, you know, I'm a big fan of that quote. Um, you know, children are a kind of indicator species. If we build a successful city for children, we'll have a successful city for everyone. And I think that kind of long term thinking is what's needed. If you, if you kind of invest in children and young people, everything starts to kind of make sense. I think you, you're not having to react to problems that then start to occur down the line. And, you know, as a parent, I can see that, you know, those early, everything we know about early years and childhood development, you know, it's so important to try and, to try and you know, um, those key touch points over a child and young person's life to get them on that right track um, towards, you know, future success and opportunities. So I would say, you know, thinking about adventure playgrounds, thinking about this this kind of child led kind of approach to childhood is it just it's it's a no brainer for me. Um, And that's why. That's why we're working so hard to protect these spaces, because, you know, 45 years, there's a reason. There's a reason these have been going for so long. Our adventure playground is beloved in our community. You know, we have people who regularly stop by and say, I used to play here when I was a child. Now my kids play here, or, you know, now my niece or nephew does. We have people who've gone on to be footballers, who've gone on to be like all sorts of interesting things coming out of this space. you know, the oral history is fascinating. And I think I think that's it though. It's about taking a long-term approach. And if you think about kids, you naturally think long term because you're not thinking about the next two years, three years, you're thinking about, you know, where are we headed? Um yeah. So I mean, that would be my that would be my rationale for 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 kind of investing in these spaces, but also seeing seeing them as part of our future. You know, I think we're going to need more and more of this kind of um face-to-face, frontline, um uh, just kind of hands-on experiences um as 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 time goes on.
0: I think what strikes me from what you said is that continuity, that sense of a growing narrative about a place, like when you place somewhere as a child and you have happy associations. That you carry those associations into adulthood, you're more likely to kind of stay in that place. You're more likely to want your child to have the same experiences you had growing up, you're more likely to kind of want to put down roots there. And I don't know, it, it sounds like there's a lot of um, importance in that. I mean, it, so, <clears> sometimes <throat> we want to escape our childhoods. Um, so to have something that you want to give to your children that you had is really precious.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing I would say is the fact that it's, you know, this isn't a new venture. This is, this has been there a long time. And I think that's another reason why, you know, when it's feeling, it's feeling hard and it's feeling like a real struggle, that's a real, um, it's a real comfort as somebody who's, who's so closely involved with this, with this organization. I just feel like I'm part of something, big. I'm um, part of something that's probably seen its ups and downs. Um, you know, it's it's it feels good. And I think it's another reason why it, it feels like a safer bet than starting something from scratch, and so as as in terms of investment and impact and all the things that I know matter to you know when you're trying to decide where to put your money or what to invest in. I mean, personally, why you know why am I putting my time into this? Like I, I've had to have those questions with myself as well, and it's like you know it's it delivers. It's there's there's something very there's very something very solid. In forty-five years of some of placemaking, um, and I'm I'm quite fascinated in in that and being a part of that.
0: And it sounds very, it's just very professional. It's not a piece of play equipment installed in a park. It's uh, it's a whole ethos, um, a whole value system, a whole level of professionalism that is, I mean, feels very robust and very it well informed.
1: Yeah, I I really feel like it's just it's just ripe, you know, and it just it just needs the right people, you know, shouting about it. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do.
0: <laughs> so you are fundraising at the moment. How do people kind of get in touch? Do they visit your website or do they contact um, Shakespeare Walk Adventure Playground directly if they want to talk about the fence project or any future involvement?
1: Yes, I would love to hear from um, anyone who'd like to hear more um, and learn more about our organization. You can get in touch with me at um, trustees at swapa.org.uk or you can go to our website, which is www.swappa.org.uk and has a donation link. And um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you.
0: Thank you so much, Natasha, for talking to me about Adventure Playgrounds today. It's been such a fascinating conversation and really exciting, actually, to kind of rethink this approach to play and the playground and to hear about the amazing playworkers doing this work. So thank you very
1: much. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by 410. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.